All right. Well, thank you, worship team, for serving us so well today and for leading us to the throne of grace and for helping us to sing about such a wonderful Redeemer. I'm going to ask you to take your Bible, and we're going to spend our time together in three texts of Scripture. We read the first of those in our reading of Scripture together this morning, the 97th Psalm. I'm going to have you turn to Romans 15, uh, and then that'll lead us into the third text uh, this morning. We are finishing a journey today that we began many weeks ago, and that journey was a journey through the Scripture to explore what God has put in His Word about gathered worship, what we do when we come together each week. Uh, We noted at the beginning of that series that this was not primarily going to focus on our individual private worship to the Lord. That is very, very important. The Scriptures address that. There are examples of it in Scripture where God's people at critical moments in their life lift up their hearts to the Lord in prayer or they open their mouth in praise or they humble their heart in submission and in adoration. And I hope that is a regular part of your life, that daily, if not, uh, not daily, maybe every other day, you are finding time to come to the Word of God and to allow the Word of God to bring you into the presence of the living God. And so private worship is a very important part of our life as believers, and everything that we do in our private worship should strengthen our ability and fuel our desire for what we do when we come together in corporate worship. But we have focused our time uh, in this series that we've called Worship Matters um, on the gathered worship of God's people. Worship that pleases God, that strengthens His people, and advances the gospel that we all celebrate. And if you remember, when we began our journey this summer, the elders had five goals And I want to review those goals at the end of our series. And I want you to think about whether or not those goals have been accomplished in your own heart as we feel they have been accomplished in our church. And the first of those goals was this, that worship would fuel our glad service to God as a church. That joyful worship would fuel our glad service to God. That was our first goal. And all through the series, we've been pointing to the joy of worship. We've been, we've been talking about how coming before the Lord uh, means that we come with a certain kind of heart, with a glad heart, with a heart that, is made, uh, that has been filled with joy, and that that joy would fuel all of our glad service to God as a church. And that was our first goal. Secondly, We want worship to be a thankful response to the grand story that God tells us in His Word about His glory. In other words, we began to understand very early on in the storyline of how God unfolds worship in the Scripture that worship is not about us. It's not about how we feel. It's not designed with us in mind. Worship has a primary focus and it's God... And it has a primary objective, and it is the glorification of God, or the exalting of God. And so that as we come together each week, that worship would be our thankful response to the grand story that God is telling in the Bible about His glory. And that brought us really to the center of the whole thing, that our corporate worship would glorify God and help us to intentionally Magnify His beauty to the nations. That was our third goal. That corporate worship is one of the ways that we glorify God and magnify Him before the nations. And then our personal participation in gathered worship. We have prayed that God would help our series this summer as we've journeyed together to take our personal participation and use it to transform us into the life of the one we worship each week, and we spent time with Isaiah looking on two different Lord's Days about the transformative power of worship. And then finally, that we would see worship as so important that each of us would give it our spiritual focus 
and our intentional engagement as we come together each week. That, that worship would demand of us and is worthy of us our spiritual focus and our intentional engagement. So, these are the things we have been praying for. These are the things we've been asking God to do. And when we began our journey in the 95th Psalm and saw the marvelous revelation God gave when He summoned His people to come with exuberant, joy-filled praise, offered to Him out of a humble, submissive, obedient heart, we resonated with that. And that began our journey. We, we found in Romans chapter 5 the amazing reason that we have been made worshipers. The glory that was lost at the fall has been regained for us at the cross. And as we come before the Lord and we look deeply into His Word, that Word transforms us, the Bible says, from glory to glory. We spent, as I mentioned a moment ago, some Sundays with Isaiah and uh, listened and witnessed and saw the power of worship to transform a life. We stood next to David in Psalm 15 and in Psalm 24 and listened and witnessed to David's testimony of how God had given to him a united heart and clean hands so that he not just could enter into the presence of the Lord, but that he could remain there in that presence and we with us. And then you'll remember we came to probably the most stunning conversation about worship anywhere in the Bible. It was when Jesus met a woman at a well. And we saw that conversation and we heard that conversation in John chapter 4. And Jesus made some stunning announcements. He said to her that going forward, worship would not happen in this mountain, the mountain where they were, or in Jerusalem. But it would have an entirely different location. And the location for worship going forward would not be on a mountain. It would be in a spirit. In a temple that the Spirit of God is building. And you and I are part of that temple. And Jesus went on to say that the hour has come. And now is that the Father is seeking true worshipers. To worship Him in that temple. And so we spent some time observing two marvelous symbols that stand behind the reality of how God found us and how He transformed us and how He delivered us from our sins so that we could be true, genuine worshipers. And we looked at those symbols and those signs that He gave to us in baptism and in the Lord's table. And then we spent time looking at Acts 2.42. And we noted there the four components that are part of true worship. When these people, these true worshipers that have been sought by the Father and purchased by the Son and are being sanctified by the Spirit come together to worship. Attention to the Apostles' doctrine, to ministry partnership or to fellowship. We saw they celebrated the gospel realities through breaking of bread and they prayed and praised God through Scripture framed praying and praise, the prayers that are mentioned there in Acts 2.42. And then last Sunday, we, we, we got to the very top, to the very pinnacle, and we entered into the throne room of heaven itself and we got to witness an extended worship service uh, where all of creation is gathered before the throne of God, and they are giving praise to the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb who was slain. And so that brings me to the question this morning. What are we going to do with all of this truth that we have discovered? We've been on a journey. We've been all through our Bible. We've climbed up different mountains. We've gone into the very throne room of God. And all along the way, we have found things and we have put those things in our spiritual backpack. And so here we are this morning at the end of the series, and we've got a backpack full of treasure. What are we going to do with everything that we have discovered? And I think there are three texts this morning that help us come to an answer that I think 
will help us gather together in our mind and, and sort of focus our attention on what God is really wanting us to do. How He wants us to respond to all that we have learned. What is the response to worship? And the response to worship is serving God for the salvation of the nations. You can see that in Psalm 97. We saw that as we read together. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Look, if you will, at verse 6. The heavens proclaim His righteousness, and all the people, all the nations, see His glory. So in Psalm 97, the psalm that we read together this morning in our corporate word time, really lays out for us a reality that Yahweh reigns. Not that He will reign one day, that right now He is seated on the throne of heaven and nothing happens on earth below that doesn't happen according to His sovereign pleasure. And the heavens declare this. The heavens declare, they announce His righteousness and all of the nations behold His glory. Well, what about all the people that don't worship Him? Look at verse 7. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship Him, all you gods. So here's the, here's the reality. There is a God in heaven and He reigns. And all of the nations are called to acknowledge this. And if you think back to what you know about the book of Psalms, that's the point of Psalms 2, isn't it? Psalm 2 uh, describes God making a choice to put His anointed king over a mountain. And all of the nations are told to kiss that son. It's one of the few times in your Old Testament where this king is actually called the son. And so you immediately know who he is. He is the one that God said to Eve would come. He is the one that God said to Abraham would be a seed. And all of a sudden in Psalm 2, you are seeing this champion seated on his throne. And God says to all the nations, that's the son and you need to kiss his foot. Or you need to kiss his hand. The idea there is you need to submit. But if you look at the psalm again and you open the, the psalm and you read verse 1, what you find out is that the nations are raging. They are in absolute anger and they are rioting against the idea that God would put this son over them and ask them to submit. And then you find out that God chose a nation from those nations. And He summoned them. And He delivered them. And He redeemed them. And He dwelt with them. And He gave them great and precious promises. And He provided for them in the wilderness. He delivered them. He defeated all of their enemies. He brought bread down from heaven for them. And He gave them a gracious, righteous judgment. Ten of them. And if you think about those judgments, the whole world goes better when it follows those judgments. Do you realize that your marriage will go better if you don't commit adultery? Do you ever think about that? Do you realize that life at your employment will go a lot better if you don't lie and you don't steal? Relationships will go a lot better with your neighbor if you don't bear false witness against him. I mean, just think about these ten gracious words that God gave this nation. And their response was supposed to be verse 9 of Psalm 97. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted above all other gods. That was God's desire that the nations would see this and rejoice. But how is God going to bring this about? I mean, we saw in John 4 that 
Jesus tells this woman at the well that God is actually seeking true worshipers, genuine worshipers. And we discover by the end of that chapter that God is seeking and the Son has come to save. And the Spirit is summoning, the Spirit is enlivening, He is enlightening, He opens the eyes after He quickens the dead heart of these people and He grants to them repentance. And we spent time looking at the stunning reality of all of that. And here you and I are this morning and we are part of what Paul is talking about. We are part of what David was talking about in Psalm 97. We have been those people that God was seeking and that the Son came to save and that the Spirit has sanctified and is sanctified. We have had our hearts quickened. We have had our eyes spiritually opened. And we have been granted by God repentance. And now God wants us to do something. God wants to bring about global worship by calling and commissioning each one of us to do something. He wants to call and commission us to a service. And the service is described for us in Romans chapter 15. Now I want you to notice what God's big mission is. Look, if you will, at verse 8. Of Romans 15. I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. You might use the word faithfulness there. To show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. The ones we were just talking about. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. And just so you know that this isn't something new, Paul is going to quote seven Old Testament passages beginning in verse 9 and going all the way down to the end of verse 12. And I think it's intentional that he chose seven. There is a completeness to this. There are texts from every part of the Old Testament, the way that Paul would have understood it, from the, the law from Moses, from the writings, and from the prophets. There are texts from Isaiah. There are texts from Psalms. There is a text from Second Samuel. There is a text from Deuteronomy. There are two texts from Isaiah. And all of them are reminding Paul's readers and ourselves that God desires to receive praise from the Gentiles. Verse 10, he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Verse 11, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the people extol him. And Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. I didn't expect that. I thought he was going to come and rule Israel. But here in this text... Paul says, now wait a minute, if you've been listening to the Old Testament record carefully in its fullness, the one who is coming, the root of Jesse who is rising, is coming to rule the nations. In him will the Gentiles, nations, that word Gentiles, the same word for nations, in him will the Gentiles hope. And then, may the God of hope Fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may have hope. You may abound in hope. This is a stunning text. And if you just keep reading a little longer, Paul's going to say this. There's a grace in verse 15. There's a grace given to me from God. And by the way, it's your grace too. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. So here's the point. Paul says, look, given what God is up to in the seven texts I just read to you, Paul says, listen, God is up to this. He wants to receive glory from the Gentiles who have received mercy from Him. He wants to receive glory 
from the Gentiles who received mercy from him. Let me ask you a question. Have you received mercy? And the answer is what? Yes. So what does God want to receive from you? Glory. God wants to receive glory from the Gentiles who've received mercy. That's you and I. We are the nations this morning. And so how is that going to happen? God is going to take somebody and commission that person to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is not news to us because by the time we get to Romans 15, we've already come through the little town of Matthew. We visited the village of Mark. We stopped at the city of Luke. We hung out at the metropolis of Acts. I mean, we've been making our way through the New Testament. And at the end of Matthew, we find the Son in Psalm 2 that the nations are supposed to receive with joy. We see that Son standing on a mountain and commissioning His disciples to go where? Go ye into all the world. Go to the nations. And make disciples. And now Paul says, I have been commissioned to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the nations. So that's the same commission you and I have. Paul is articulating it here, Romans 15. Jesus articulated it in Matthew uh, 28. All right. Now, what is that commission like? What I didn't expect... I fully expected it to be to the Gentiles, because Jesus said it. I fully expected it to be about the good news, because that's what the gospel is. But I didn't expect it to be a priestly service. You see that in Romans 15? The grace has been given to me by God, verse 16, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. I didn't anticipate that. I never would have thought of this as a priestly service. I could have seen it as a prophetic ministry. But this is a priestly service. You and I know about priests because we have an Old Testament full of what that looks like. God raised up a nation, didn't he, in in Israel? And he said that they were going to be a nation of royal priests. Why do you need royal priests? Because he's sending that nation of royal priests to a land that used to belong to God. And that will one day again belong to his people. But that land is filled up with people and nations who are worshiping idols. You and I know that as the land of Canaan, or we know that as the promised land. And God is sending a nation of royal priests with an army into that land, and they're going to do two things. They're going to take that land back, and then they're going to cleanse and consecrate it. They're going to take that land back, and then they're going to cleanse and consecrate it. That's why you need a nation of royal priests. And Peter actually uses that very same language to describe us. He talks about the fact that we are a royal priesthood. And God is sending us into the nations. And one of the things that he wants us to do is we are to go conquering in the name of Christ. This is a spiritual conquering, not a physical one. And the point of the conquering is to rescue people from the bondage of darkness and from the bondage that they are under when they have been enslaved by the wicked one. And that's why you need the armor that you find in Ephesians chapter 6. There is a priestly service that you and I are involved in, and one of the things we learned from the Old Testament is that when priests came before God, they brought an offering. And Paul describes the offering that God wants him to bring in this priestly service to the gospel. And it's this, the Gentiles. Paul says, listen, I have been called. I've been summoned. I've been redeemed. My heart was enlivened. My eyes were opened. I was granted as the chief of sinners. I was granted repentance. And now I have been granted a grace. 
and enablement to go to the Gentiles in priestly service to the gospel of God. And the offering I'm going to bring back to God is the Gentiles. And you're like, well, how in the world can you bring an unclean offering to God? Because if anything we learned in the Old Testament, we learned this. You can't just bring an offering to God in whatever shape you want it to be. It has to be an offering that has been consecrated to God and that is perfect before God. And so Paul, I'm so excited to hear about your new ministry. You're in this priestly service. You're headed off to the Gentile world and you're going to bring them back as an offering to God. How's that going to work? And Paul says this. Look again. So that the offering of the Gentiles may be what? Acceptable. That's a worship term. So that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And that brings me to the final question this morning. That is, how in the world is that going to happen? And that's where I want you to turn to Romans chapter 12. And I want you to draw a line in your mind from what we've just been reading in Romans 15 all the way back to Romans chapter 12. This is what God is up to through worship. God is, first of all, sanctifying you and me so that we will be the acceptable offering that Paul was talking about that is brought before God through the gospel. You and I are part of worship in maybe more deeply ingrained ways than we initially thought. We are part of the offering that comes before God that has been made acceptable to God by the Spirit. And so, how in the world does that happen? How do you and I become an acceptable worship offering to God? And then how do we become good laborers in the priestly work that Paul is doing? And so, I want you to see that as you think about Romans chapter 12. Verses 1 and 2. We're not going to spend a lot of time here because you know this text very familiar. We typically don't connect it the way I've connected it this morning to Romans 15. We typically don't see the fact that God is trying and, 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 and laboring. He's not just trying, He's accomplishing. He is bringing Gentiles in as acceptable worshipers who are going to enthrone Him on their praise. That's what Psalm 22 Verse 3 talks about. And so I think that's why in, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, there is this penetrating appeal that Paul makes. He says, I beseech you. The word beseech there is, is not um, a word that, that we would use for a good suggestion. Hey, can I suggest something to you? You know, I've been thinking about what you and I talked about, and I've been, been kind of mulling it over, and I have some thoughts that I'd like to offer you. That's not what Paul's doing. Or, you know, I, I've been watching this for a while and it hasn't been going well, so I actually have a really strong suggestion for you. That's not what Paul's doing here. The word beseech is, is a very powerful word and it's the idea of exhort. I'm exhorting you. There is, there is imperative behind all of this. Paul, Paul is actually saying to them, not just I suggest this, and not just, I'm strongly hoping you'll consider this. He's saying to them, you must do whatever I'm about to tell you. I beseech you, there is this strong exhortation. And the people who are receiving this exhortation have received something that qualifies them to be in this group. This is not an appeal that's just general to everybody. This appeal in Romans chapter 12 verse 1 that is so powerful and so penetrating, has a particular group of people who have received something. And whatever they have received has made them brothers and sisters. I beseech you therefore, what? Brothers. And whatever has made them brothers 
has immense and powerful reality to it. And it's summed up in the word, therefore. Whatever this is that is the basis of this appeal to these brothers is in chapter 1 through 11. So there is this appeal that Paul makes to us. And the appeal has a very pointed objective, a very piercing objective. Whatever this appeal is, Paul is driving the reader to it, and it comes at the end of the paragraph. It comes at the end of verse 2. Paul says, I want to exhort you brothers to discern and do the will of God. I mean, if you want to sum it up, that's it. Paul, Paul is going somewhere with these worshipers who have been sanctified by the Spirit of God, who have been summoned by the Father, who have been saved by the Son. You see, what is in that word, therefore? All of that. They have been summoned by the Father. They have been saved from His wrath by the Son. They have been set apart and sanctified by the Spirit of God. And all of that is in Romans 1-11. through And these people now, Paul says to them, I want to exhort you to this one thing. I want you to discern and do the will of God that is good and acceptable and perfect. That's where the passage ends. That's where it is going. How should you and I respond to the immense discoveries we have made about gathered worship. Paul says, let me tell you how to respond as people who have been summoned by the Father, saved by the Son, and sanctified by the Spirit. You corporately and you individually need to discern and do the will of God that is acceptable and good and perfect. This will of God that Paul is talking about is spiritually beneficial. That's the idea behind the word good. It's what God did, or it's what God evaluated, or how God evaluated every creative day at the end. At the end of every creative day, Moses wrote down and told us what God saw, and he stated that what God saw was good. And Paul says, now, the will of God for you is like that. The will of God, whatever it is, is good. It is spiritually beneficial to you and to others. It is morally right. It is spiritually proper. It is acceptable to God. And it is fully aligned with the will of God, the Word of God. It is perfect. It is complete. It's whole. It's sound. Paul says, now look, there is a will that God has that is spiritually beneficial and it is morally right. And it is fully aligned with His Word. And you need to discern that And you need to do that. Well, how in the world am I going to do that? And Paul says, all right. Well, first of all, you have a new mind. You you have a mind that has been regenerated. Our, Our natural mind as an unsaved person would never, ever be able to figure this out. In fact, that's what Paul wrote in the book of Ephesians chapter 4. He said, I say this. And testifying the Lord. This is Ephesians 4, 17. You know this verse. I say and testifying the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles. Paul was sent to the Gentiles. You and I came from the nations. Paul was sent as a priest to bring an offering out of the Gentiles that would be acceptable to God. And so in Ephesians 4, he's talking about those people. I testify in the Lord, you must no longer walk as Gentiles do. Well, how do Gentiles walk? They walk in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. They are alien to the life of God. Why? Because of the ignorance that is in them and the hardness that is in their heart. And because of this hardness, they have given themselves up to sensuality, to greed, and to practice every kind of impurity. Go to any major city in this country. Go to every major people center in the world and find out what people are like. 
give them any new technology and six months in that technology is going to be used to do things that God said he sends people to hell for. This is who we are by nature. And Paul says you are no longer like that. People are alien to God because of the blindness the ignorance and the hardness of their heart. Romans chapter 8 says this, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not like that anymore. Ephesians chapter 4, this is not the way you learned Christ. Somehow you were taught, you heard about Him, you were taught in Him as truth is in Jesus. And and because of this, you were taught to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and in holiness. Do you realize something? The gospel of God that was accomplished for you by Jesus and applied to you by the Spirit has totally regenerated not just your life, it has regenerated your mind. Remember the old Shema, the heart of Israel's worship, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is what? One, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. Jesus is going to repeat this. Well, how in the world am I going to love the Lord with my mind if I have an unregenerate mind? And Paul says, no, wait a minute. When God sent people like me to people like you with the gospel of God in priestly service, he granted you a new heart and he granted you a new mind. And then he granted you a new power. Philippians chapter 2, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, this is Philippians 2.12, you know this verse, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation. The other word, the idea there is display it. Display your salvation with fear and trembling. How am I going to do that? It is God who works in you, both to do and to will His good pleasure, both to will and to do His good pleasure. This is a reference to the Holy Spirit that applied all that God summoned you to and that the Son accomplished for you, the Spirit of God applied to you. So Paul says, you have everything that you need to do the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. And that's your objective. Now I want you to notice uh, in Chapter 12, verse 1, there is a really interesting observation. There is a personal requirement here. So what is God's will? I mean, entire books have been written about this. I can't tell you the number of times I found myself in the same spot that you're in. I'm like, God, I, just, I wish I could just know your will about this. You, you ever been there? Like, oh man, do I, do I take this class or that class if you're a college student? I, I wish I knew what major it was supposed to major in. Or, you know, I'm thinking about this job or that job, and, and I, I'm just, I wish I could just get the mind of God on this. Or I'm thinking about buying a car, I don't know if I should buy a new car or a used car. Uh, I don't know if this is the right time to buy a car. I, I, I just, I wish I could figure out the will of God. And typically when we talk about the will of God, that's the level we're at. Paul is actually going to go to a far different level when he talks about the will of God. If you want to know the will of God, Paul says, here it is. You are to present your body a living sacrifice that is holy and acceptable God uh, to God. This is the will of God. If you want to know the will of God, here's the fundamental piece of it without which all the other little pieces make no sense and really make no difference. Paul says, here's the will of God. Bring your body, bring your physical life, and give it to God 
as an offering. That is living. This is not a dead sacrifice. That is completely devoted to God. That's the idea of holy. It is completely devoted to God's use. And it is morally and spiritually cleansed by the power of the Spirit and the washing of the Word. You say, Pastor, what is God's will for your life? I can tell you right now. I don't know what car you should buy. I don't know what job you should take. I mean, I can pray with you about that. And there's all kinds of ways in which God orchestrates and guides our steps along the way. And, and there is certainly guidance that comes from God. But I can tell every one of us this. There is a part of the will of God that is very, very clear. And here it is. You and I are supposed to take our physical life and completely devote it to the use of God in ways that are spiritually pleasing and morally clean. And we do that through the sanctifying work of the Spirit God, through the Word of God that washes us. That's the will of God. And before we get all bent out of shape because I can't figure out what car to buy or what city to live in or what house to buy or whether or not I should take out this loan or not, before we got it all bent out of shape about that, have you given serious attention to the very clear statement God's making here? That your entire life, your physical life, your body, that's the instrument that God wants to use. Everything that He's going to accomplish through you is going to involve your body. And God says, I want that. You want to give me something? You want to bring me an offering that will please me? You want something that will bring joy to my heart? You bring me your life. And give me that life in an unreserved way. So that I can do whatever I providentially, in wise, loving providence, designed to do with that to bring more Gentiles to the gospel. Are you willing to do that? Your, your body is not like this little throwaway part that we can do whatever we want with because after all, it gets old, it gets wrinkly, it starts missing parts, and one day it's going to die, and then we're done with it. No, 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 your body is an eternal part of you. It matters incredibly to God. He purchased it. He's going to restore it. He's going to raise it up in glory like it ought to be. And right now, He wants to use it. You say, man, I, I mean, this body's weak. It's, it's, it's old. It's, it's achy. It's, it, God says, it's okay. Bring it to me. Bring me that body. And give it completely over to me. You devote that body to me your whole life. In all of its weakness, in all of its brokenness. Paul talked about the fact that his outer man was decaying. And, and God says, Paul, bring that, bring that outer decaying man to me. And the Spirit of God is going to energize it. And the Word of God is going to cleanse it. Paul says, man, God, I don't know if you want this life. I don't know if you want this body. Think of what I did with it for all those years. I was the chief of sinners. Now, Holy Spirit let him write it down in inspired language. Yeah, Paul, you were actually. Go ahead and write that down. God, I don't know. If you, what are you, you going to do with this body of mine? It's been beat. It's been busted up. I'm not even sure it can see straight. I've been hanging out in the desert. I've been out in the, you know, out in the wilderness. And God, what are you going to do with this body? God says, you bring me that body. And devote it to me. And let me put it wherever I want to put it. And let me use it however I want to use it. And Paul, I'm going to tell you something. If you'll give me your body, there will be a horde of Gentiles who glorify me for the mercy I've received. I want to receive glory from Gentiles who've received mercy. And Paul, if you give me your body, what's left of it? For however long it's left on this planet, you'll, if you will give me the entire sovereignty over that body, and let me use it however I want to use it. I promise you something. There will be multitudes of Gentiles glorifying me for the mercy they've received 
that you're writing about. You say, well, what's the point of all this, Pastor? The point of all this is this. This is not unique to Paul. This is what God wants to do with your body. And some of you don't like your body. Some of you don't like your life. Some of you are like, man, man my life is miserable. I don't even want to talk about it. I dress it up on Sunday the best I can, and I show up, and I smile at everybody, and I put my Jesus face on. And it's like, how are you doing today? Well, God is good all the time. Yeah, he is good all the time. And you look around and, and you're not envious. I understand this. You're not envious, but there's a longing. It's like, why can't my marriage be what I think that marriage is like? I was at a restaurant yesterday with a couple. Beth and I were there and we were eating. And it wasn't like one of these highfalutin restaurants. It was more like a restaurant that you shouldn't eat at if you want to be healthy. And so we were over there eating, trying to eat healthy, unhealthy food. And we looked over there, and I'm sitting across the booth from this couple, and we had a tr- just a beautiful time talking and talking about what guys are doing in their life and all the things that are going on here. And, and I looked over, and there's this couple, and they're sitting against the back wall. And he looks like Methuselah. And she looks like Mrs. Methuselah. And they are just digging into their food, and I'm like, I'm going to go find out who those people are. So I walked over after we finished, and, and I said, y'all look happy. And she goes, that's because we are. <laughs> I was like, okay. I said, well, how long have y'all been married? 66 years. I thought, there's a sermon illustration maybe here if I dig a little bit. I said, sir, can you tell me, he hadn't said a word so far, can you tell me, sir, the secret to this happy 66-year marriage? Don't fuss. And he went right back to eating. I'm like, don't fuss. I said, that's, I said, do you mind if I tell a whole bunch of people at church tomorrow that don't fuss? He goes, well, I said, what's the secret to don't fuss? He goes, well, she's never said a crossword to me, so I've never had to say a crossword to her. And he went right back to eating. Very talkative gentleman he was. You know, there's a sense, isn't it, when we look at somebody else and we see their life and we're like, man, I wish I could have a life like that. Man, when they show up, they always got their Bible. Or, man, when they talk, it's always like they're talking about God's blessing on their life. Or, you know, they witness to people. And, man, it's everything I can do just to, I don't know, Pastor, I, my life's a mess. It's broken. It does, there are parts of it, I, don't, I mean, I just... I put my church clothes on and I show up here and I got my Jesus words, but I go home and it is a mess. There's no possible way that what you're talking about is going to happen to me. And Paul says, wait a minute, you bring me that broken, messed up life and give it to God and you'll be shocked what God can do with broken things. Think about what God did with broken things. He took a broken bottle of alabaster and and anointed Jesus' feet with it. He took broken bread and fed multitudes and He took a broken son whose body was broken and He saved you and He saved me. Don't be shocked when God takes your broken life and says, now if you'll bring that to me and really give it to me. In response to worship, I'll use it. There's only one thing big enough to motivate that, and that is the mercies of God. I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Eleven chapters of stunning mercy. And God says to you, I have more mercy. Lamentation says God's mercy is fresh every day. Let me ask you this as we close. I'm going to pray here in just a minute, and then Pastor Ben's going to come with some announcements. Are you willing to respond this way to God? Are, are you willing to say, God, I, I've been listening all summer to gathered worship, and okay, I will bring you my life. You know all the mess that's in it. I'll bring you my life. And I'm ready for you to consecrate it. I'm ready for you to cleanse it.
I'm ready for you to take the next step in my sanctification through the Word. Are you willing for God not just to have your life, are you willing for God to use your life? Are you willing to say to God, God, here I am in my place, and I'm willing to stay here, and I'm willing for you to take this body that you're sanctifying and use it here for your glory. I want you to use it in my neighborhood. I want you to use it at my work. I want you to use it in, at the restaurant I eat at. I want you to use it at the gym where I work out. I, I want you to use it with the person that fixes my car. I want you to use it, Lord, among my friends. I want you to take this life that I'm giving you and I want you to use it. And then here's the final question. Are you willing to let God have your life? Are you willing to let God use your life? And here's, here's the big one. Ready? Are you willing for God to do with your body what he did with Jesus' body? To bring about the gospel in somebody else's life. Are you willing to do, are you, I'm sorry, are you willing to let God do with your body what he did with his own son's body to bring the gospel to other people. Before we pack up our bags and go across oceans, we need to unpack our bag and let God use our body and our life right here. And that's a hard thing, especially when we say to God, God, okay, you've got my life. You can use it any way you want. And I'm willing for you to do to my body what you did to your son's body for the sake of the gospel. There's only one way that ever happens, and that's for the Holy Spirit to grant that. You're not going to get there because I told you an emotional story or because you read three books or you heard some podcast. You're going to get there because the Spirit of God draws you. And God responds when we ask. Would you, would you bow your head and let me pray for us? And then Pastor Ben, you come. Lord, we are stunned, actually, at where this all went. I never saw this coming at the beginning of the series. I didn't think we were going to end up here. But actually, all makes sense. That you would send your son in a body to accomplish salvation that would bring mercy to Gentiles who would render you glory for the mercy they received. And that's why we're all here. And then it shouldn't surprise us that you would call us to do the same thing. To take our bodies, our lives, and give them to you so that you can use them the way you used your son's body and the way you used Paul's body and the apostles to bring the gospel to others so they can receive mercy and render you glory. And so, Lord, help us to become part of that process. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.